This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here as always in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim. And I'm particularly happy today to be joined by my brother, Rick Ayers. What's up, Rick? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's a beautiful day, except for the smoke and the earthquakes and the uh, global warming. Everything else and, is and, fine. And, and war in Europe and Cold yeah. War in Asia. Other than that. Besides that, that it's just great. You just yeah. put a uh, rhubarb pie in the oven. That's Okay, good. <laughs> um, you were a guest on the last episode of this podcast, and now you've been demoted, and you're going to co-host this one with me. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And I still can't get over uh, in the last episode that sweet and deep introduction of you by the inestimable Shanaka Hodge. That was yeah. beyond beyond belief. Yeah. I'm always in awe of her. Yeah. Well, I'm in awe of you and her. So we had a good time last time. Um, a couple of months ago, you introduced me to a m- remarkable writer and activist. And we were able to connect and have a conversation with her a couple of days ago, you and I. Um, uh, you know, we had such a moving conversation from her home in the Galilee, and it took us a while to hook it up. Um, but maybe you'd introduce folks to our guest today. Tell us a bit about how you got to meet her and who she is. Well, the book that I came across was by Fida Jirius, and she is a Palestinian, and it's a Palestinian identity that's not well-known, which is Palestinians who live inside the borders, of the current borders of Israel. And uh, she's an amazing woman. She just wrote this memoir about her family life. And, you know, 20% of the people inside Israel, Israel today, are Palestinians. So it's a growing population. Um, But her family story uh, is, is, told so beautifully in this memoir called Stranger in My Own Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, urge people to get it. I I actually was given this book by my friend Cliff, who was also interviewed on Under the Tree. Yeah, Cliff Mayot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cliff. And, uh, and I, it's, it's a long book. I started it and I just couldn't put it down as it was a, it, it does a, important piece of memoir, which is that we, her family story, with the story of the Nakba, the founding of Israel, and the ongoing struggles. And, you know, they are driven from pillar to post, you know, their family's village is destroyed, they moved here, moved there. The family was, uh, the father was a a leading intellectual of, and, and still alive, a leading intellectual and uh, theorist of Palestinian community, uh, and was in Lebanon, uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, when most of the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization was there, uh, was one of the heads of the PLO Research Center. And um, then Israel invaded Lebanon. They actually blew up the research center, which killed her mother. And uh, her father and other family members then fled to Cyprus, 
and were in Cyprus until after the Oslo Accords, and then they moved back to the West Bank. She currently lives within Israel. But, um, you know, the whole story of her life being driven around and and the different chapters of it are, are stunning and amazing. And for me and for many stupid Americans like me, uh, it pushed me from being concerned about the bad policies of Israel to questioning the entire Zionist project. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, she she has a remarkable story to tell. And she tells it with such clarity and honesty and really a, an understated passion um, for humanity. I, I just found our conversation um, so moving and I want the world to hear her voice. Let's right. let's let's go to the conversation we had a few days ago. Yes. Um, and and let's let's hear from Fida. Thanks so much, Rick. Okay. See you soon. Fida Jaris. Tell me how you pronounce your name. Fida uh, Jaris. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Yes. It's a bit of an odd name to pronounce in English. Well, you know, we're the odd ones, and so we're we are completely honored and delighted that you've joined us, and we're going to have a, I think, a rich and productive talk about your book, about your writing, and about the situation in Palestine today. Um, it's so. Great to have you here. Can you tell Thank us you. Um, where you are right now? Where, what city you're in? Where you are, and and maybe what you can see from your front window. Uh, sure, uh, I have been uh, been living in Ramallah for the last uh, fourteen years or so, and uh, as it happens, just uh, two months ago, uh, I made the decision to uh, leave uh, Ramallah. And I'm now back in the Galilee in my father's village, uh, which is called Fasuta. Mm. Uh, we are in the Galilee, which is the north of uh, historic Palestine, what is today Israel. And we are literally just a few kilometers from uh, the Lebanese border. Uh, we're in the Galilean mountain range, which is very beautiful. Uh, so around us are, you know, thick forests uh, with pine trees, cypress trees, uh, and so on. And... Uh, out, even out of my front window are lots of trees in our garden and the orchards of the neighbors and so on. So it's a very idyllic uh, existence. And one wow. could almost for, yeah, one could almost forget. I always think about this where, you know, which country we're in and what's going on, sometimes only a couple of hours away. Yeah, I often feel the same. I feel like um, when I when I'm fortunate enough as I am right now to be in the wilderness and to be in nature and to be by a river, and feel at peace. Uh, it's a hard contradiction to remember that the world is in flames and that it's not all as it seems. But I'm glad you started by talking about the Galilee and where, where it is, because one of the great gaps in American knowledge about Palestine is even a geographic sense. What does it look like? Where are you? And um, I, know, I, I, I know the area some, but I don't. I think it, it's worth describing to Americans how Israel and Palestine fit together and, and don't. Um, so I appreciate your beginning there. But say another word about the geography and and how you came from Ramallah to Galilee. 
Uh, yes, of course. Uh, well, the the chief uh, problem, of course, uh, with people uh, recognizing where Palestine is, is the fact that Palestine, uh, officially or on the world stage, has been obliterated from the map. Uh, today, the the so-called state of Palestine, at least on paper, exists in the West Bank uh, and the Gaza, which are near the center of the country, near Jerusalem. Uh, however, no Palestinian state has yet been attained uh, since the Nakba or come into being, despite the fact that this was the promise of the Oslo Accords uh, now about 30 years ago. Uh, Palestine, historic Palestine, is a, is a thin and narrow uh, sliver of land uh, with the Mediterranean, on the shore of the Mediterranean. Uh, and on its east, uh, north, east, uh, north and east, it's uh, bordered by uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon and Jordan. Uh, and to the south by uh, Egypt, uh, by C the Sinai Desert and Egypt. Um, with the Nakba in 1948 and the establishment of the State of Israel, what was historic Palestine essentially ceased to exist. At least it ceased to exist formally. Uh, on the world and by the international community. And overnight, we found this sliver of land being turned uh, into what is uh, today Israel. Uh, after the 1967 war, some 20 years later, Israel occupied uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which until then had been under the control of Jordan and Egypt, respectively. Uh, and it put them under military uh, occupation, a situation that persisted until the signing of the peace agreements uh, in 95, the Oslo Peace Accords, 93 to 95. Uh, thereafter, these areas came under control of the Palestinian Authority, and that's still the case today, but effectively they are still under Israeli occupation because Israel maintains a strong presence in them uh, and uh, dictates the lives uh, of their uh, residents and makes their lives mostly miserable. Uh, I was living in Ramallah, which is uh, just uh, north of uh, Jerusalem. It's the de facto capital uh, of the West Bank. Um, most of the Palestinian Authority's institutions are there, uh, and most of the a lot of the uh, foreign uh, NGOs, uh, civil society organizations, and so on. Uh, to travel to the Galilee from Ramallah, you basically go upwards. You go north, uh, so from the center of the country, north in the direction of the of Lebanon, of the Lebanese border, and it's about a three-hour ride. The country, uh, it's very important, I think, to mention to uh, Americans, um, is very small. Certainly, I mean, by by you know the measurements of the United States, the country is tiny. And uh, in a recent, you know, book event, I, I was saying, and I even, I think, I believe I said it somewhere in the book, that it is remarkable how a place that is so tiny can hold so much suffering. Yes, I'm glad you gave us that background. And maybe you could, from there, talk a bit about your odyssey, your family's journey. Mm -hmm. And you yourself, I don't think, actually set foot in Palestine until you were, what, 22 years old, 23 years old? Yes. Tell a bit about your family story. Uh, thank you, Bill. So uh, in 1948, uh, during the Nakba, uh, my father was 10. He saw uh, children from uh, and uh, their parents from nearby uh, villages uh, being ousted, uh, effectively expelled from their villages across the border uh, into southern Lebanon as the fighting intensified. That our part of the Galilee was really the last part to be seized in the war. Uh, it's at the top north uh, west of the country and uh, it was the last to fall. Uh, 
as he saw people from uh, surrounding villages uh, leaving, uh, this put a lot of uh, questions in his mind as a young child. You know, he didn't understand what uh, on earth was happening. When he visited their empty villages later, his shock uh, intensified. And I think that planted a kind of uh, seed uh, in his mind uh, that something here was terribly wrong. Uh, and he wanted to find out what it is and he wanted to do something uh, about it. Uh, and uh, he went on, uh, he studied, uh, finished his uh, schooling in the village and then went to the Terrasanta uh, school in uh, Nazareth and from there to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He qualified as a lawyer and was one of very few uh, Palestinians uh, to do so at the time uh, and uh, was practicing law. At the same time, he became uh, a leader in Al-Ard. Al-Ard was the first uh, Palestinian uh, national movement, you could say to emerge after the blow of the Nakba and Israel's creation. And it campaigned for, you know, the return of the refugees, the return of the plundered uh, properties, uh, the lifting of the military rule that had been instated on the small minority of Palestinians uh, that remained in their country. He was, of course, heavily harassed uh, by, uh, for his work. He was repeatedly uh, imprisoned uh, and had his movements curtailed. And eventually in 1970, he had to leave with my late mother to Beirut. It was voluntary expulsion because he was going to be imprisoned for uh, for a long time. In Beirut, uh, he joined Fatah and he worked with Yasser Arafat. He eventually became his advisor, or one of his advisors on Israeli affairs, and he directed the PLO Research Center. Uh, I was born in Beirut, as was my brother. They were turbulent times because the Lebanese civil war in the 70s uh, was also uh, uh, raging. Uh, and eventually in 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon with the aim of driving out the PLO uh, and all its personnel and forces there. It was a very, very uh, bloody, uh, gruesome invasion. Uh, thousands of people were killed, thousands disappeared. Uh, Beirut, West Beirut was pretty much annihilated. And uh, I lost my mother uh, during that war. Mm. Uh, in June 1983, we left Lebanon. We were among the last, really, uh, Palestinians uh, who had worked with the PLO to leave. And we relocated to Cyprus. Now, all along, to me as a child, the idea of returning to Palestine was never really a concrete one. It was simply not on the horizon. I understood that my father was a political actor that he could not go home, that if he went home, he faced, you know, imprisonment or worse, uh, and that we were simply in exile. This was the condition that I had become uh, accustomed to. Uh, and I went, you know, in school, we went to school in Cyprus, then I went to university in England, and all the while, you know, my, my sort of trajectory, imagined trajectory for my life was, you know, to come back to Cyprus and find a job, which I did, and carry on there. Almost out of the blue, at least for me at the time, the Oslo Accords were signed. And out of the blue, we found ourselves eventually being able to come back uh, to our village and visit it for the first time. Uh, this was probably the biggest uh, and most, uh, most I don't know, uh, the memorable event uh, of my life. Uh, it was really huge uh, to us because we had never expected it to happen. We were, you know, all our extended family was here. It was really, really very uh, intense emotionally. And about six months later, in uh, June 95, uh, we came here to live uh, permanently. Uh, 
thus started my journey. Uh, you know, uh, the honeymoon part was over, the happiness of return to Palestine and so on. And slowly uh, I began to receive the, the rude awakening that this was actually Israel, that I was, that I had become an Israeli citizen, you know, by virtue of my father's uh, citizenship, which was still intact. We, we got ours and that I had to somehow navigate life. Uh, among uh, Jewish Israelis and learn Hebrew and work in their institutions uh, and so on with the baggage that I held with my mother's loss, with my growing up as a Palestinian, with my understanding the the trauma uh, and everything that the Palestinian people had gone through. I stuck it out for eight years and then I went to Canada. Uh, I lived in Canada for six years and then I had to come back home. My stepmom uh, was uh, ill and this time I chose to come back to the West Bank, to Ramallah, uh, where I lived for the longest chunk, really, for about 14 years. Uh, pretty much within the first few years of living in Ramallah, I also understood about the occupation, which I had never lived under or experienced uh, on a first-hand basis. Uh, uh, and it was brutal. It was really brutal to see the, the daily practices against uh, you know, a hapless Palestinian population to see the intricate system that had been put in place, not just by Israel, but by the international community, to keep the Palestinians captive, to, to you know, uh, uh, prevent their dream of statehood or any form of independence or sovereignty. Uh, and to see the humiliation, really, that people endured and the misery and the pain that they endured on a daily basis, the deaths, the arrests, the disappearances. I mean, it was really, it's, it was very, very difficult. But along the, along the way, I made friends in Ramallah. I had worked there. And so I stayed for, you know, all of this chunk uh, of time. Eventually, the last few years, it just, it became uh, too, too much. Uh, and recently, uh, unfortunately, I, I had to make the decision to leave. I simply could not stay there uh, anymore. So my life, you could say, has been a series of stations. Uh, and I don't know if any of them were really completely voluntary. It was, you know, more like you are trying to cope with the demons by running from one place to another now that i look back on all right. this journey that you know i realized that's what it was although at the time it felt you know yes i'm i'm you know free and i'm doing what i want to do and so on it was not really none of these places were really uh ma made by choice as such even leaving cyprus i mean my father was still working with the plo at the time and there was no question of remaining in cyprus even if we had wanted to because the plo had relocated all of its institutions to gaza and then to the west bank uh, so now when I look back on this journey, I feel a mixture really of, of you know, um, the gratitude, I suppose, because, you know, I can make the decision to leave these situations and to go elsewhere. And at the same time, a lot of pain uh, for my friends that are still there for the daily life, the reality that I understand and that, you know, I cannot ever uh, wipe out or forget. And for our reality as Palestinians, uh, so, so scattered uh, across so many geographical uh, boundaries. Wow. Vida, um, you tell that story so beautifully in your book, Stranger in My Own Land. And it reminds me of what Edward Said says, just basically a life of exile, exile from mm -hmm. here to there, as you say, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is stunningly painful and beautiful as you tell it. Um, one thing, and again, we're sort of conscious that a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in the U.S. A lot of people don't understand. They think of, oh, Palestinians, they're on the West Bank or in Gaza. But 
the whole identity of those who live within what's called Israel now um, is something that is quite different and and I guess regarded by uh, Israeli law as uh, Israeli Arabs. But can you describe a little bit what the uh, sort of identity and status is of Palestinians who are within the borders of Israel? Uh, yes, thank you very much, uh, Rick. Indeed, after the Nakba, uh, which was really the biggest blow uh, that the Palestinian people uh, suffered, uh, uh, about uh, 700,000 uh, Palestinians, uh, more than half the population of the country were expelled. Uh, and uh, the estimates range, but I think more than 300 uh, villages were uh, wiped off uh, the map. Uh, what happened was a small subset of the Palestinian population of what became Israel managed to stay. It managed to stay for various reasons, including the chaos at the time, the fact that uh, Israel in occupying certain places was already facing some form of international repercussions because of the refugee crisis that was growing in the region. Uh, and the fact, I, I suppose, that, you know, the, the operation uh, stretched out really for more than two years. I mean, although we refer to it as 1948, the expulsions did continue for about two years after that, well into 1950. Um, the total number of people that stayed uh, were about 13% of the changed uh, population. And they were immediately placed under military rule by the Israeli authorities. Uh, military rule effectively meant that the um, Israeli government or authorities had total control over their lives. They dictated um, uh, where they went. Uh, any movement about between their villages or towns required uh, permits from the military governor. Uh, this governor intervene, intervened in everything, where people lived, where they worked, what they did, who they associated with. Uh, it was really a total form of uh, control. Uh, of these people's lives in order to ensure that, you know, the uh, the, the creation of the state would go unhindered, uh, there would be no uh, disturbance to its plans and so on. These people found themselves really um, in a state of total shock. I mean, not only had they lost the majority of their people uh, and many villages uh, stood there empty or were eventually destroyed by the Israeli state, uh, but they also found themselves as a minority in this state, heavily persecuted uh, and not knowing where to turn. Uh, it took them really uh, about 10 years uh, to recover from this shock and to begin to organize uh, and to understand more about their lot. Uh, you know, as as uh, people who had been given citizenship, but, in a, you know, uh, an inferior one. Um for many decades, uh, the rest of the world had the blind eye to these people. It didn't really see them. Particularly after the June 1967 war, as all attention turned to the new wave of refugees um, and to you know Israel's victory against you know uh, three three Arab states, two Arab states, and uh, you know they forgot. I mean, these people were the the Palestinians who remained in in Israel itself and what became Israel were largely. Uh, forgotten or ignored, and in some cases they were accused uh, to have been um, co-opted into the Zionist project by accepting citizenship. Um, the world or the Arab countries were largely ignorant of the fact that this citizenship had been forced upon them, that they had no choice really, uh, if they wanted to continue living in their villages and uh, towns. Mm -hmm. um, only in recent years, I believe, and when I say recent, I mean 
probably in the last, you know, as recently as two decades or so, 20, maybe 30 years, uh, has the world become more aware of this uh, segment of the Palestinian people as they have spoken out more uh, and they have become uh, more vocal, uh, more internationally known as well. And they have become also, uh, they have uh, challenged uh, the Israeli uh, government. They have entered, uh, managed to enter the Israeli parliament, formed their parties and so on. Of course, with a lot of struggle, uh, Israel always likes to boast about being, you know, a democracy and giving the Palestinians within it uh, a chance to uh, to act within this democracy. And this is true. However, little is said about the uh, the racism and the backlash that these people face. Uh, Israel would never would never ever permit, for example, a, a an Arab or a Palestinian to become prime minister, uh, nor to hold any senior positions, for example, in the defense ministries uh, uh, and other uh, ministries and so on. So really, these people, I mean, it's, you know, it's sad they were really left to fend uh, for themselves. Add to this the fact that after the Nakba, Israel cut off their ties completely with the Arab world. It was illegal to uh, communicate with anyone in Syria or Lebanon or Jordan with the threat of prison sentences if they did. So they were really completely wrenched out of their natural uh, environment and scope uh, and placed in this alien state. And uh, today, when I look at my fellow Palestinians uh, living inside Israel, I see really a very different group of people than those in the West Bank. They have different challenges. Uh, they have come to uh, deal with the state by knowing it from inside. Uh, and they operate uh, in a different way, in a survival mode that is uh, somewhat different from the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. So sadly, we have become, you know, disparate groups of uh, people with little connection between us. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, I'd like you to expand on this a little bit, because as you say, the world is becoming more aware of the reality of what's happened to the Palestinians and the and the terrible, terrible um role of Israeli occupation and Israeli, you know, conquest. I think that's true. But I think in America, we are the last holdouts in a certain way who don't quite catch up. You know, I mean, I think it's changing. I think uh, American Jews are are much more aware and conscious of of the horror that uh, Israel is for, for, for many, many people and for the world. And I think that's important. But I think it would be um, useful to talk a bit about this contradiction of the only democracy in the Middle East um, and and kind of being a Jewish state and what that what that means and and perhaps a bit also about the actual lived experience of the discrimination, the humiliation, the laws that make it an apartheid type state um, for those who are not full citizens. What class citizenship look like in Israel today? Hey, thank you, Bill. Yes. Um, basically, the, we, we can start from the beginning uh, of uh, your comment. Uh, Jewish and democratic immediately takes away the democratic. Why? Because you cannot be democratic only for a certain group of people within that country, and then others of the country are not somehow uh, treated the same or are not uh, the same level of citizenship. Automatically, you've removed the democratic. So this continues to be the line that Israel touts over and over again. And it really amazes uh, us Palestinians and many others uh, how it can somehow see itself uh, like that and be comfortable with that definition. Uh, 
this contradiction uh, lies really uh, at the crux of Israel's uh, existence uh, as a very uh, racist project. Uh, racist because uh, it is it is uh, portrayed or it sees itself as a, a homeland for the Jewish people and for nobody else. Ignores the fact that there were other people uh, living on this land before it came and you know carried out this onslaught against them. Effectively, I think what has happened is since the Israel's creation, it has never really quite known what to do with the Palestinians remaining in it. And uh, when I was researching my book, I did find one or two accounts of uh, Israeli uh, officials who, let's say, had been candid enough uh, in closed meetings or whatever to say, you know what, we made a big mistake leaving any of them here uh, about us. <clears throat> Uh, because, you know, obviously with time and natural, you know, population growth, today we are, uh, I think, just over 20% of the population. So one in five people is not uh, the Jew for which the democracy exists. Um, what this means in terms of daily life is very, very uh, intricate. And that's why sometimes it's very difficult for people from outside uh, to understand it. Because on the face of it, yes, we enjoy the same citizenship, we have the same rights. Uh, however, uh, just you know, a closer look at some of the details, um, of which some of which I recount in my book. Certainly, in my own experience, applying to uh, workplaces, uh, the right to have a job, to have employment, which should be every person's right uh, in a country, and in fact, the state should worry about this and encourage it. Employment. Uh, many workplaces that I applied to would ask me for an army number. Uh, as a as a Palestinian minority in the state, we are exempt from serving in the Israeli army. Uh, and this is used as a way to kind of keep you out of certain jobs without telling you outright that it's because you are a Palestinian. So they ask you for your army number. Very often, if you can't provide it, they'll smile and they'll say, well, thank you very much. We'll call you. And they never do. Um, Many kinds of uh, jobs uh, and workplaces, you will find that, you know, uh, Palestinians are employed and they work, but that the, the 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 higher the promotion, the less likelihood it, there is that the Palestinian will get the position. Uh, and I've seen this among, you know, friends and relatives and so on. I've had, you know, examples uh, that people have told me. Now, around our areas, our villages and our towns, very little development is undertaken by the state. There's almost zero business initiatives. Uh, it took forever for them to put a functioning uh, uh, public transport system in place. I mean, Fasuta up until, I believe, something like 10 years ago had, I think, one bus that went and one bus that came or a couple of them throughout the day. Um, there was no, you know, functioning daycare center for mothers who wished to work. I mean, these things that are a given uh, in Jewish communities for us, you know, have have still not all materialized. So you can really see in fact, even as a visitor, if you are driving, uh, you can automatically tell or you learn to tell which are the Jewish communities and which are the Palestinian ones by the degree of underdevelopment of the latter. Yeah. Um, the discrimination also, I mean, if you are in a public place, sometimes if we're speaking in Arabic, we'll get looks uh, from people and sometimes it can be very intimidating. Uh, at football games uh, in Jerusalem, it's normal for Jewish uh, uh, spectators or fans to shout and scream death to Arabs, death to Arabs throughout the match and without the police or anybody intervening. Uh, the level of violence against uh, Palestinian citizens, the way if anything goes wrong, you know, they are beaten up brutally before the police really finds out 
really bothers to find out what's going on. Here, I think I can interject and say there are a lot of parallels. Perhaps the easiest way for people to understand the situation of the Palestinians in Israel is that of the blacks in the U.S. Of course, in different you know contexts and with different uh, uh, challenges and so on. But that's that's what we feel. We are very much the blacks uh, in the system. Yes. Yeah. It, it, speaking of parallels, uh, Fida, and, and your own story, your family story in your book uh, uh, carries so much of the detail that 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 would make a an American reader understand it so much more. Uh, I also think of the parallel in the U.S. of Native Americans because, you know, the, there was a way that the European arrivals were like, oh, this is a land where nobody lives, so we are just civilizing it. Oh, there's a few inconvenient people. We have to move out of the way. Uh, it's very similar. But I, I kind of feel like Americans, white Americans live in a in a sort of bubble of privilege So we in, in a way that we don't even see the privilege we're living in, and then our propaganda about uh, Israel, you know, from Paul Newman's in uh, movie Exodus to Steven Spielberg's Munich, which actually uh, justified assassinations of Palestinians throughout Europe. It was an unbelievable accomplishment of uh, apologizing for that kind of horror. Uh, but I wonder if Israeli Jews live in the same kind of uh, blindness or uh, the same sort of bubble of privilege to where they can't see your humanity. And do you find allies? Are there allies? Uh, people, you know, we know there are now these demonstrations against the fascist uh, uh, Netanyahu attempt to get rid of the judiciary, but are there allies of the Palestinians in this kind of uh, protest and struggle? Is there hope for that kind of um, uh, development among Israeli Jews? Hey, thank you, Vic. Uh, yes, this is a question that I have battled with, all Palestinians have, but I have battled with it on a personal basis more and more with every year that I spend here, and especially when I was doing the research for this book. Why? Because the research uncovered systematically the amount of horror over the last hundred years or so. When you look at it all like that in condensed form and you're trying to put it in a book, it really is uh, shocking in its, in its uh, systematic brutality. Uh, and I often ask myself, you know, where are these people? You know, what, uh, you know, what's going on and so on. Now, to say that they don't know Somehow, I mean, that's that's also what most Israelis will tell you. We don't know. We don't know. We, you know, I, I've never heard this before. I've never spoken to a Palestinian. Still, I tell myself, okay, every Israeli home has at least one member of it who is currently serving in the army or is in the reserve. Um, people cannot be uh, so blind to the reality around them. I think what happens is uh, they choose not to know. There yes. are certain things which we as human beings find it much, much easier to pretend not to know about because knowing about them would force us to take a stance. Yes. If we are not in a moral place where we are ready to take a stance or we are simply too afraid to stand up against the tide and against the state and the status quo and our friends and our relatives and society, I mean, it's a huge thing, right? The, those who do stand up face big, big, big repercussions. Um. And so what happens is they turn a blind eye. It's much, much better to turn a blind eye. And here, actually, just a few days ago, 
last week, uh, Mohammed uh, Tamimi was killed. He's a child, two years old child. He was shot by an Israeli soldier and died two days ago or three days ago. I saw uh, uh, an impassioned uh, uh, argument or shouting by the renowned Israeli journalist Gideon Levy. Uh, he was on TV. And he was really, I mean, he was really yelling. He said, you know, I want to understand what it is, what kind of system we have in place here. Uh, we prefer to see these people as terrorists. We don't want to see them as human beings, because if we do, it would force us to ask ourselves what we are doing to them. And then he said, the family of this toddler who was shot and killed, is it a family of a terrorist or is it a bereaved family that finds itself, these were his words, in, in a horrifying tragedy in which it has no part. And he said, we, we don't, why can't we talk to these people? Because, God forbid, we will then see them as human beings and then we will have to look in the mirror and see what we've been doing to them for the last hundred years. Now, having said that, uh, Israelis uh, uh, do this very well. I mean, they're, obviously their media completely hides what's happening. Uh, references to Palestinians are usually as uh, you know, terrorists or underground operatives or you know, people as such names. Um, and they are always portrayed as, you know, wanting to cause harm to the state in one way or another. Nothing is ever said about what is being done to them, about what the state perpetuates on a daily basis. This is in Israeli media. A person really has to strike out on their own and attempt to forge connections with people and speak to them and go to the right organizations to find the material. But the fact is, the material is all there. It's all there. And it's, it's just, you know, at their fingertips, but they choose not to see it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the real function of privilege is that it's blinding, is that it it uh, it takes away your capacity to see things because the way you see things is from a pinnacle that's not in that. That's why in our country, white people often have a hard time seeing what African-Americans see or men have a hard time seeing what women see because they're anesthetized to it. And I think that's a really really critical point but your your story of of the killing three days ago really goes right back to the nakba and to your father's early experience and the wiping out of villages i one book that i found incredibly moving was kirbet kiza and you must know that book um by an israeli an israeli legislator i believe about the ethnic cleansing of one particular village and that happened all over uh the land that that kind of set, driving people out, and as you said a minute ago, what are we going to do with these this population that exists? How are we going to deal with it? And certainly, ethnic cleansing, driving people out, making life unbearable, uh, has been a strategy for sixty years. Uh, indeed, and actually, um, uh, Bill, it's never really far in the sense that. Uh, even for me personally, I mean, uh, two weeks ago I was in uh, Jerusalem and I had uh, very good meetings with a Jewish American group uh, of activists that comes here and uh, tries to uh, forge networks and educate people and make efforts to stop the, to end the occupation. Um, these meetings were taking place in uh, West uh, Jerusalem uh, and I was also staying there. And um you know, all I had to do was basically walk around the neighborhood and a quick glance would confirm that these are all Palestinian homes uh, yes. that had been taken over. Uh, those parts of West Jerusalem really hold some of the most beautiful Palestinian architecture in the country because they used to, you know, some areas there were uh, affluent, 
Uh, they belong to the, you know, to the bourgeoisie of society. Uh, so you can really see some amazing, uh, beautiful buildings. I mean, the gardens, the the architecture, the tiles, the mosaics, and so on. Uh, and you see all these homes, and they are taken over by others who live in them very, very comfortably, very comfortably. I don't think they ever ask themselves the question, who was here before and whose, whose house, essentially, are we living in? Um, and for yeah. me, I mean, this is, is this it's, it's it's a direct and guttural blow every time you see it. You can't just walk by and pretend you don't see it. Now, one of the things you wrote that that was very moving to me was you wrote that uh, you sometimes open your eyes and you look around and you see a massive graveyard, mm. and you're it, it's almost madness to realize that people walking past you don't see the graveyard. They mm. they see something entirely other. And that contradiction must be just horrifying to live with day in and day out. Yes, and it's also uh, recently, I think maybe after the experience of writing this book, and I think every writer who has uh, written about particularly uh, brutal and bloody conflicts will probably arrive at the stage uh, sooner or later, but you begin to question things that are far beyond what you're writing about. You begin to question humanity itself. Right. Sometimes, sometimes you wonder if you're going a little bit crazy because you begin to question, you know, what is this creature made of that he can inflict all of these horrors on his fellow creatures? Um, to the point where, you know, I'm also an animal lover and I work a lot with stray animals. I try to help them and, and so on. Unfortunately here, you know, as in the rest of the Middle East, the culture is, is, is still, you know, very, very recently beginning to come around to the idea of, you know, being kind uh, uh, to animals and so on, to stray animals at least. And, uh, you know, I help them. And, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, so-and-so, they are behaving like animals. And I, I tell them, you know what, <laughs> humans have a, have a capacity to behave in no way animals ever do. Uh, yeah. You know, animals kill you other but they don't do it in the systematic way that humans do they don't they you know it's 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 a whole different dimension and it really forces me into this place it's it's a very dark place and actually over the last few years i really struggled with this and i understood that i had better stop myself at a certain point from going too far down this road because oh. it can really take you into a full depression oh you're right animals animals do a lot better than we do in in the kind of uh, you know it's not just a dog eat dog kill each other world it's more a, a kind of a, a symbiotic uh, e ecosystem that animals live in i i think about that when i think about the horrors of the holocaust and people who go back in warsaw poland to where their home used to be and polish christians are living there but it was a jewish home and the 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 heartrending stories like that and to imagine that the the people who suffered that oppression would visit the same oppression and actually the same taking over of homes that uh, that that are stories from the holocaust it's it's incredible that that within the 20th century and now the 21st century such a a, a tremendous flip of of uh of historical uh, crimes is happening, and and you're paying the price. Well, we you know, as as as, yes. as Rashid as Rashid Khalidi wrote at one point, you know, to be the victims of the 20th century's, you know, 
emblematic victims is a very, very treacherous kind of place to live. But your point, Rick and, and Fida, about land and looking at land and what you see and what you see beneath what you see, you were living in Cyprus, Fida, and I was in oh. Cyprus for a year. And uh, you see the same thing. You, I went with a friend to her ancestral home, which was taken over during the Turkish invasion. And and uh, that we had a nice visit with the people who live there now, but it was um, painful, emotionally very difficult to realize the crimes that had been committed that allowed that situation to go on. And of course, Rick, here we live in occupied territory as well, um, <laughs> built on genocide and slavery. And we tend to um, we tend to live day to day trying to ignore it. But as Fida says, sometimes you can't, or sometimes you're your own sense of your own humanity demands that you not see it as normal. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and in fact, it's interesting because, you know, this um, the point of the Holocaust, I mean, it's a point that's told to me over and over again. Uh, when I meet Israelis, you know, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, my grandmother, you know, this happened, that happened. But, you know, I'm always amazed. Why did that, why does that story stop there? Yeah. Why is why is the latter part of the story about you coming here and taking somebody else's home and inflicting a different kind of Holocaust, but very mm. much, very much something comparable to Holocaust when a person, uh, you know, loses loses uh, you, you know everything. I mean, I have a quote at the beginning of the book from Anton Chamnas, who's uh, you know he's he's also my mother's cousin, so he's my relative. And, you know, he says, uh, it, you know, something like, uh, it, it, he must be dead. It's like dead, you know, losing a home overnight and being condemned to wander, you know, God knows where. Um, and I don't think, you know, any Israeli can really fathom, even the ones, I mean, to go back to your earlier question, there are people, there are a lot of people now, the number is growing, albeit it's still very small compared to the, you know, as a percentage of overall population. There are people who know what's going on and they are informed and they are trying and everything. But I think it's very difficult for any of these people to fully understand it at the visceral level because to understand something like that, you would have had to live it. You would yeah. have had to live the complete horror and insecurity of waking up one day to find yourself flung from your village with only the clothes on your back yeah. and to lose parents and siblings along the way and to have no money and no food and you know i mean that kind of horror is very difficult for someone to imagine we can we can imagine it you know mentally or when we read about it but but you know i think the average israeli if they really stopped and this takes me back to the issue of maybe needing to shield themselves from that because i'm sure you know the ones that i know who are aware and who are trying to work there's a permanent sadness in their eyes and it comes from you know this feeling of communal guilt even if yeah. they try not to verbalize it yeah, but you know, be you know, once you realize that, it's very, very hard to 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 unsee it. You know. Yes, and you described meeting with some. Um, I think you said some American Jewish organization recently. Um, how did that come to be? How do you? Uh, how do? I guess I have a couple of questions. One is how do people get a hold of you, and what is your work? I know you're you're doing you're a writer, but how how do you come to be in a meeting like this? And did you feel that it was a productive meeting? Uh, thanks, Bill. Yes, I mean, I've had many uh, meetings like this over the last uh, seven, eight years or so. Uh, it started by uh, getting involved with Breaking the Silence, which is an Israeli organization 
uh, made up of former uh, soldiers in the Israeli army who served in the West Bank, who come forth afterwards to give their testimonies. The aim of the organization being to spread awareness among the Israeli public and to end the occupation. This is their mission. So it's a very, very brave uh, organization working in extremely adverse circumstances, as you can imagine. Uh, and a few years ago, in 2017, they published a book on 50 years of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, the book was called Kingdom of Olives and Ash. I took part in the book and then through promoting the book, I began to meet uh, other Israelis and Americans and organizations and so on. And from there, the ball began to roll. Essentially, along these years, I've found myself as not only a writer, but also a writer and a spokesperson, you can say. Uh, for the Palestinian cause, to tell people about it, uh, you know, to educate people, to answer their questions, uh, even to be a sounding board sometimes as people are thinking about things that they can do, things they can uh, affect or help. Um, so really, you know, as a writer about Palestine, and I think every Palestinian writer here who chooses to write about Palestine ends up in that capacity somehow. You can never yes. do your writing alone. You can't just yes. go and sit in your wonderful house by yourself and write. Because right. people will come and knock on your door and they want to talk and they want to talk about the book and then they want to talk about the situation and so on. Uh, okay, and this so, is something we do gladly, you know. This is because of course. This, this gives meaning to it. Of course, and doing. it makes sense. And I guess it leads me to two questions. One is breaking the silence. How can people get a hold of you um, it, 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 or, or your organizations? Um, that's my first question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was actually only involved uh, with them on that project. I'm not actually a member uh, of okay. the organization. I only took part in the book. But on a personal uh, level, uh, I mean, my, you know, my email, I'm on Facebook, I'm on social media, LinkedIn, and so on. So I usually, I'm very open to people reaching out uh, and uh, talking. And when people have read my book, uh, a big number of people have actually reached out that way. Uh, the nice part is today, uh, it's fairly easy for people to find you if you use the same name and you're on social media. I do get a lot of requests from people who've read the book and a lot of, you know, amazing conversations have taken, uh, you know, place as a result. Some of them have turned into friendships and into avenues of, uh, you know, cooperation uh, and work and so on. And um, what happens is uh, very often in these cases, uh, Bill, one group will bring another and then they'll bring another and it's through word of mouth. Yeah. And eventually, we all we all come to feel like a little community because we all know each other. <laughs> yes, that's well, beautiful. And and you you speak you speak English, Arabic, and Hebrew, right? So you uh, speak yes. to Hebrew, all communities. Yeah. Yes, my Hebrew is uh, more basic, but I can definitely uh, understand very well. I can also speak at a basic level. So I have done. Uh, um, uh, evenings events. and book events, yeah, with uh, Israeli audiences where the questions uh, and the conversation is going on in Hebrew, but I'm, you know, I answer in English simply for fluency. So that also uh, really helps. And I think, in a way, I think it also helps having lived abroad for so many years, I can yeah. kind of put myself in the shoes of where people are coming from. Yeah. So I understand the cultural differences and I'm able to, you know, to relate to people and that helps. I, I, was know, just I, re, I was just rereading the part in Toronto, uh, yes. and, and I was in exile in Toronto during the Vietnam War. So yes. that same feeling of being over there, but thinking always about back home and the fight is there, and I, I don't belong here, and I miss people there. Yeah, the, you, you, you described that so painfully and beautifully. Well, you know, you described uh, you. Uh, 
getting to know people through the, through your book. And, and one of the things we like to do on this podcast is, is uh, amplify writing and reading. And, and uh, so stranger in my own land is a book everyone should, should read who wants to understand the situation of Palestinians. I mentioned Kirbit Kiza by Yizar. Um, who are some of your favorite writers about Palestine? And, you know, as Americans, many of us have read Rashid Khalidi and believe that his books are super important. Edward Said, The Question of Palestine, as well as many other things. But who are your, who are the writers you think we should be reading and, and some of the writers that we might not know? Mm -hmm. uh, there are many, uh, of course. Uh, I'll start by saying that I personally find it very, very um, heartwarming that uh, over the last 20, 20 years or probably a little more, we've seen a plethora of new writers emerging, especially those that are writing about their lived experiences. So not just, you know, as important as it is to document the history and the politics, we're also seeing people telling the stories of their families, you know, in memoir. This is crucially important uh, for us Palestinians because our memory has effectively been, you know, wiped out or it has been targeted with the aim of wiping it out. It's very, very, very important to preserve this memory uh, in writing. And uh, people are writing their lived uh, experiences. Two of, perhaps two of the ones that most stand out for me now are uh, Ghada Karmi. Uh, if people are aware of her, Ghada is a physician. And uh, she was expelled uh, from Jerusalem as a child in the 1948 war uh, with her parents. And she uh, went, they went to the, uh, the UK. She lives in London. Uh, Rada wrote a, an extremely moving book, which I think, you know, is really a, a fundamental text in Palestinian literature, In Search of Fatima, uh, where she speaks about the uh, caregiver, the nanny who used to come uh, to the house and her attachment to her. And the fact that, of course, this woman was lost. Uh, after the uh, 1948 war, the Nakba. So in search of Fatima, she has also written another very, very uh, important book. She has several titles. The one I read recently is called Return. It's an older book. Essentially, I wanted to call my book Return. So when I was in touch with Gada, she was jokingly telling me, please change the title. Um, but Return is interesting because it describes her experience, which was similar to mine. She came back for one year after the Oslo Accords and worked with the Palestinian Authority. And she describes the pain of that experience uh, uh, and how uh, difficult it was and how far away from the dream that we had all entertained uh, as Palestinians uh, in coming back. Another person uh, is uh, Raja Shahadi, uh, also very uh, important Palestinian writer, has uh, a number of books, including an award-winning one called Palestinian Walks. He recently wrote a very moving book, uh, We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. Uh, it's about his relationship with his father. I read yes. that and I'm now uh, reading a previous book he wrote on the same subject called Strangers in the House. Raja yes, I, has, I, yeah, I just finished yeah. I just finished his book about, about his father. It's yes, fantastic. Yes, but yes. Palestinian Walks is one of the books that absolutely I think yes. every American should read. It's such yes. a beautiful, beautiful book by a brilliant yes. Lawyer, yes. writer, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, both of them, I mean, both the examples I cited have this uh, beautiful gift of being able to 
write about their intricate personal lives, but you always, always see the, 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 what's happening to Palestinians overall, the shadow of the Palestinian uh, tragedy in the background. It's always there. It's the threat that runs through the story. That's a beautiful way to say it because we, in the, the books you mentioned, we, we see the personal in the political, we see the political in the personal, and they're not separable. And, and uh, it takes a very talented writer to, to do it well because otherwise it can easily become either polemical or narcissistic. And, and the writers you mentioned do neither. I mean, and, and that's also and so, true of your book. Frankly. So do you, Fida. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank your, you. your, your book you. does a brilliant job of, as you say, the shadow of the Palestinian history is in you know embedded in your personal story but your personal story is so humane and so human that you can't help but be drawn into it i think it's just a great accomplishment thank you so much i admire you so much there's one other little tiny aspect i'd like to get to not tiny i'm sorry there's one <laughs> other aspect i'd like to get to which which you you described going recently from ramallah to northern galilee and, you know, one of the things that people don't understand here is the reality of border checks and crossings and uh, the complexity of getting around in this very, as you say, very small, densely packed um, country. And, and for Americans, there was an Academy Award nominated film uh, called The Present, I believe it was called. Is that yeah. Yes. And, and 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 it's a short film, 25 minutes, I believe. But it really shows you the reality of what those border checks are like. Maybe you could say a word about moving around and what what that feels like uh, for a Palestinian um, in Israel. Uh, the system of checkpoints uh, is uh, instated in the West Bank and, of course, in Gaza, which for you know more than a decade has been completely sealed off and uh, uh, by Israel uh, and by Egypt, actually, uh, and lives under a terrible humanitarian uh, uh, crisis and embargo. Uh, but in the West Bank, there are really Israeli checkpoints at every entrance and exit of every town, and uh, you know, and most many of the larger uh, villages as well. Uh, and these uh, things are really horrible because they stop people randomly uh, and they will search the cars and they will ask for people's IDs. And the, it can take anywhere from a few minutes to several hours to cross. Uh, this needs to be done every time a person uh, wants to get from uh, one uh, town or village to another. And so you can imagine the kind of hassle people endure just to do uh, normal everyday things like going to school or going to work or going to visit family uh, or friends. So I, while living in Ramallah, my experiences were all with the Kalandia checkpoint, uh, the largest, I believe, in the West Bank. And it's at the entrance of uh, Ramallah, between Ramallah and Jerusalem. We are talking about places with uh, huge watchtowers. And a lot of, uh, you know, the iron wires, I don't know what you call them in English, the, the sort of round wires, the mesh that separates everything. Uh, there is a big uh, pedestrian uh, crossing where people are herded literally like cattle. It's completely awful. I had the misfortune of crossing it a few times. Seriously, I mean, uh, you know, you could easily imagine yourself or somebody else having a heart attack in there. It's that bad. Um, while you're crossing in the car, uh, it's also uh, nerve-wracking because 
for the last, uh, you know, few uh, hundred meters or so before you cross, there's, you know, cement uh, uh, on both sides. So you can't really turn around and come back. If there's any shooting or disturbance at the checkpoint, you're effectively stuck. There have been many times where I've had to duck in my seat because things went crazy and you're just, you know, just hoping and praying that you won't be shot. People are shot and killed at these checkpoints randomly all the time. We hear this in the West Bank almost every week. A person is shot and killed by a soldier in the Israeli army who mans these checkpoints. No one has ever, ever been held accountable for the shooting of innocent civilians. The Israeli army usually puts a story together about that the person was holding a knife or, you know, intended to harm the soldiers or whatever. Uh, you know, most in 99% of cases, you know, this is untrue. We're talking about young people. We're talking about students uh, and so on. And uh, any, any form of movement that they don't approve of will automatically cause them to shoot somebody. They will not even shoot let's say, at the feet or the legs with the aim of, you know, basically incapacitating the person and arresting them. No, they will shoot to kill. Now, for Palestinians navigating these, these you know, horrific things, it has become a daily part of their lives. Um, but also a large part of the Palestinian population, and this is something that's rarely reported on, you know, uh, by the media and, you know, when we talk about the conflict, uh, a very large uh, percentage of Palestinians suffers from, you know, mental uh, uh, diseases or anguish or, you know, anxiety or stress or, or so on because of this terrible reality that they live in, this manufactured reality of horror that governs their lives every day. I hold uh, an Israeli ID because I am, you know, an Israeli Arab, as, as Rick said earlier, this great you know, oxymoron of a term. Uh, I am a Palestinian who holds Israeli citizenship, and therefore I have uh, what we call the blue ID. It has a blue cover. It's the Israeli ID. So I am able to go in and out of the West Bank unstopped. I have no problem. I simply showed to them at the checkpoint, and they let me in. Holders of Palestinian IDs, that is, residents of the West Bank, have a green ID, and in order to enter Israel, they need special permits. Now, even with my so-called privilege of being able to go and come as I want. What happened was that for years in Ramallah, I ended up being a voluntary prisoner and I stayed in Ramallah and avoided trips outside it, even to nearby Jerusalem or, you know, or even sometimes to go north to Haifa to see friends and so on. The reason being that I was, I did not want to go through the horror of the checkpoint. This is how bad it is that I'm actually able to go and come, but I chose not to. And the other thing is I don't want to stand for four hours in the traffic to get there and get back for right. something that we're only talking about a couple of miles at most. You know, the, the, the story you tell is harrowing in itself. Uh, again, for Americans, it's worth finding this film, The, the Present. By, yes. I, I think the filmmaker is Farah Nabulsi. But mm -hmm. one of the things he does in the film, very short film, it's about a man going to get an anniversary present for his wife, and he has to go through a checkpoint, yes. and he has, he has his young daughter with him. But one of the brilliant things that Nabulsi does is he does what he calls guerrilla filmmaking. He takes a films at the checkpoint with ordinary Palestinians, and the only person who's you know, fictional is the star of the film. In other words, they don't have permission to take the film. They just take it, and you see the the kind of banality of the of the humiliation and the fear 
uh, and it's all there. And it's not an act. It's not something that's made up. It's actually how people experience this particular form of oppression um, in the way that, that Israel has set itself up. And uh, it's often, it used to make me question all the time that doesn't Israel ask itself at some point that, you know, this kind of endless repression of human beings, what is it producing? Many Israelis yeah. who are more aware and who know what's going on have repeatedly asked this question. You are producing generations of traumatized people uh, who yeah. are going to, who are going to want revenge for the, for the, for the horrific treatment that you have inflicted on them. So yeah. really you have a pressure cooker called the West Bank. And what do you think is going to happen with it? You know, what Israel does is use force and force. And when things go bad, it uses more force and more exactly. excessive force. And that's, that's the strategy. But this strategy exactly. ultimately cracks, as we're seeing now, all the time. Today in right. Janine, from the morning we've had, it's been a horrific day today with clashes in Janine. It's it's absolutely going to blow up and it and and is blowing up. Um, yes. And there's no, I mean, the the solution seems to be for the right wing politicians in Israel more and more and more, as you say, force, repression, yes. more, more violence. Um, mm -hmm. With without end, um, and the only end really is total ethnic cleansing, total genocide, whatever. But but it leads me to to want to ask you, what is your hope and your dream at this point? Now, I mean, in the longer run as well as kind of um, for today. Right. I mean, what 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 do you hope for? That's a difficult question, and answering it will sound like I'm maybe seeking some kind of utopia. Yes. But ultimately, ultimately, I just hope, you know, far from the slogans or anything, I just hope that people in this country will come to their senses and that ultimately it will become a state for all its citizens. Yes. Uh, I will add that many Palestinians I have spoken to have repeatedly told me, uh, including members of my own family and my friends, even in the West Bank, even those living under occupation, they have repeatedly said, we have no problem living with anyone. We just want to live in peace. Yeah. Uh, a, a friend, and he's, he owns a vegetable uh, market in the West Bank, and we used to talk, and Ramallah used to talk all the time. He said to me, I, I want to raise my children. I want to send them to school without worrying that they're going to come home dead. I want to have money to put food on the table and not to starve you know while while jewish families and nearby settlements you know have their swimming pools and their gardens uh, you know and he said he said before oslo we used to have we used to go and come we used to have you know some business partnerships with them and so on we want to live we want to live in peace we don't care who we're living with okay. i believe if you conduct a, a, a survey most palestinians will tell you the same but it's up to the other side to really come to its senses and to realize, you know, this is, this is there is no end to this and it's not sustainable. Today, we already see, I mean, leaving the Palestinians aside, we already see the huge fracture that took place in, in Israel this and last year. I mean, you're really talking, we're now, what, the 24th week of demonstrations or, you know, something like that. Uh, there is a huge, uh, 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 you know, abyss being uh, fallen into by Israeli society and they are really clashing with each other because... The state from within is beginning to realize that this project is not sustainable. Really? You cannot base a project on racism and hatred and expect it to go on forever. Right. Well, I want you to know that uh, that uh, we share that dream and we share that utopian 
hope um, and that we feel deep, deep solidarity with you. You said earlier that the book has allowed people to contact you and that some have even mm -hmm. become friends. And I hope we we are becoming friends because Thank we you are very much. we are with you. And and the one other wish I have is that you would tell your father that we admire and uh, love him and wish him nothing Thank but the best. Thank you so much, uh, Bill and Rick. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, it's, and it's uh, really it's really great to be with you and to connect with you. Thank you. And thank you to Roxana. It's, it's been an honor. Been, it's an honor to to meet you. Uh, I, I feel like I know you well because I sat for many weeks reading this book and freaking Aww. out. And uh, now uh, we get to really see you face to face and... Uh, you're you're a wonderful force for peace and for hope. So thank you so much. Thank you joy, very much. And joy and you. justice. Joy and thank justice. You. Thank you, Rick and Bill. And I hope we stay in touch after this. Thank you Let's so sure. much. Thank you, Fida. Bye-bye. Wow, Rick, that was extraordinary. I'm so, so grateful to you for, for hooking us up. Um, I really want to continue to be in touch with her. She's a remarkable person. Well, thank you for helping to amplify her voice and people can find her easily on LinkedIn or Facebook and um, she should be invited to other uh, forums. Spell her name for folks. Yeah, Fida, F-I-D-A, Giryas, J-I-R-Y-I-S. And the book is Stranger in My Own Land. Okay, Rick, thanks so much. And thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger as the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, to my two intrepid co-conspirators, Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw, and especially today to Rick Ayers. Go forward, keep rising with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.